9,000 hymns, 900, 9,000, right? She was born in a Christian home um, in Massachusetts. When she was just six weeks old, she had a, an eye infection. And when the physician came to help with the eye infection, whatever remedy he gave, it actually made it worse. And from that day onward, she became completely blind. The rest of her life, totally blind. Um, the same year that she went blind, when she was six weeks old, um, her father died. And so she was raised by her mother, Mercy. And as a young child, they would read to her because obviously she couldn't see. And so they read the Bible to her in literature and poetry, especially the Bible. And she was a very bright young woman. And so being read the Bible over and over and over again, by the time she was a teenager, she was memorizing five chapters of the Bible a week. She had the entire Pentateuch, all four Gospels, all of Proverbs, and most of the Psalms memorized. And after she actually was, was in a service and she heard the hymn by Isaac Watts, Alas and Did My Savior Bleed. Some of us know that hymn. It was through singing that hymn that God saved her to know that there was a Savior who bled for her. That, that truth that she had known from her childhood, God used it to, to bring her to himself. So you fast forward to the end of her life, the day before she died, she was writing a hymn. And I want to just draw attention to one hymn that she wrote. We actually sing it here at UBC. We've, it's a newer hymn that we've sung recently. It's, it's new to us maybe, but not new to everybody. Um, it's called, All the Way My Savior Leads Me. You know, I'm not going to give you a solo at this, but don't worry. It's okay. All, I'm just going to read the words. All the way... My Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy who through life has been my guide? Think about what those words meant to her. Who through my life has been my guide. Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. Listen to this. For I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. For I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. Now you may not know where that phrase comes from, but Lord willing, you will know in a few minutes. But I would just ask that question. Jesus has done all things well is the declaration of this blind woman who lost her dad at six weeks. And I would ask you that question, do, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus has done all things well? Well, to help us understand what that means and the significance for our lives, I want you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. In this class, we've been thinking about being uh, students of the Word who go to the Bible not simply for information. We go to the scriptures because we want to meet and commune and see and marvel at the risen Christ who by his spirit 
reveals himself in all of his goodness and grace and glory through his written word. And so when you go to the Bible, we go to the Bible to meet Christ, to see Christ, to behold him by faith as revealed in his gospel. And that's what we're aiming to do. We want to see him and savor him so that we can be transformed into his image. Because that's what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. We become like him as we behold him by faith. I wanted to read this quote. I think it's in your notes. Maybe not. Who knows? It's up here. Um, It's a long quote, but it's a Piper quote. It's really good. Knowing the wonders of God happens by knowing the wonders of his word. The modern fast-paced world will tempt you to rush and skim. Rush and skim. This kind of life will make you shallow. The world does not need more widely read, shallow people. It needs deep people. I don't mean complex. I don't mean highly educated. I don't mean you know big words. I mean you have seen glory. The glory of God in his word. Beholding glory begs for lingering. You've pondered it and felt its relation to all the parts of your life. You have been steadied and satisfied by it. You have come home. You're not frantic anymore. You're at peace in the presence of God. That's the kind of people we want to be and become. We want to be deep people. And our depth is rooted in the fact that we've seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of ballast we need when we go through trials of various kinds. And so that's what we're trying to do in this class. Um, I told y'all... Uh, by the end of the class, my main goal is that you would know the Rourke rules of interpretation. So I'm going to say them one more time. For one more time until, until we meet again, beloved. Uh, words have meanings. So pay careful and prayerful attention to the words. Every jot and tittle is inspired by God. And if God has spoken in his words, 66 books, he didn't stutter. He didn't give us 66 books to be ignored. Every word matters. And so we want to give attention to the words. We want to understand what those words mean in context. We, we understand a word given its context, what comes before, what comes after. And we want to make sure our interpretation lines up with the context because context is king. Scripture interprets scripture. I've said this, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And so any passage of scripture, all of scripture is, is really the context of any passage of scripture. And so the more you read the Bible prayerfully and carefully, it will help you understand every part of the Bible, okay? And when you read the Bible, this is really the point of this class. When you read the Bible, you need to look for the glory and grace of Jesus. If you don't look for his glory and his grace, I can promise you this, you won't find it. But if you seek him with all your heart, if you look for his glory and grace, he, he'll meet you there. So this morning, we're looking at Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 37. And uh, this is probably a really familiar passage. What I want to do is read it, read the whole passage to us, and then uh, give you a little bit of context, and then we'll jump in, okay? So let's read it, and then uh, we'll look at it more carefully. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. And from there, he, that is Jesus, arose, and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. 
And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and he had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looked up, looking up to heaven, Jesus sighed and said to him, Ephatha. That is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Okay, beloved, let's, let's, uh, I, we have two kind of big, uh, kind of two passages, two paragraphs that we're going to be looking at this morning. Let's consider what we can learn about the majesty of Jesus in these encounters between a, uh, two Gentiles, okay? Now, if you, if you look at this passage in context in Mark chapter 7, Jesus is increasingly having um, interactions with the Pharisees and the scribes, and, and it's becoming more and more combative. Now, just in the context, Jesus has been in a kind of debate with the Pharisees and scribes about what makes someone unclean. Remember that whole episode? If you look in Mark chapter 7, verses uh, 14, or actually verses 1 down to, to 23, they, get up, they get upset about Jesus' disciples not washing their hands. And Jesus says to them, it's not, it's not what's outside of you that defiles you. It's what's inside of you. And so in order to magnify this issue of uncleanness, where does Jesus go in our passage? Look at verse 24 again. It says, he went from there. So Jesus has been ministering down in the south, uh, kind of, or, or I guess in the north, Uh, of the Sea of Galilee, but he's going to go to even further north up to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And because uh, I know y'all need visuals, I I spent all day yesterday drawing a map. So here, I drew this map for y'all. It took me all day. That's right. I just lied. I I didn't do this map. But you can see here, right, this is, here's uh, just to give you an idea, here's, um, here's Jerusalem. Here's the city of the king. Up here, this is the Sea of Galilee. See that? And then on the, on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, kind of the northwestern part is Capernaum, right there. 
you can't really see it that, that very, it's right there or right there. And that's been Jesus' base of operations. He's been ministering in the north of the Sea of Galilee. And only one time did Jesus cross the sea to the, to the eastern shore into the Gentile regions over here. And that was one time when he healed a demoniac and then he killed a bunch of hogs. Sorry, no offense. And then now Jesus has gone up here. You see? Tyre and Sidon. See that? This is real Gentile regions. And we're going to talk about this area in a minute. And then when he, when he does the second half of our passage, he's going to come down here to the Decapolis region in this area. Okay? So that's, that's kind of what's going on. And, and the main thing you need to understand is that would have been an unclean area. Like, like Tyre and Sidon, if you know the Old Testament scriptures, are, the, like, are uh, enemies of Israel. They hate Israel. Remember, there was a, a king named Ahab. Remember him? And uh, Ahab, he, <laughs> Ahab, he, uh, he had a, a, a princess. And what was her name? Remember? What was her name? Jezebel, right? And where was Jezebel from? She was from Sidon, right? So, so there are some real uh, negative associations among the Jews with this part of, 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 of the land, right? Um, in other words, if you're a Jewish rabbi and you're making a top 10 list of places not to go on a weekend retreat, Tyre and Sidon's at the top of the list. You don't go there. If Jesus is trying to get away to get some free time to kind of veg, this is not where you go. This is like enemy, enemy land, okay? And so, so what we're going to see uh, is that Jesus, sorry, Jesus is the king whose grace knows no borders. He's, he's the king whose grace knows no borders. And so we're told right here that Jesus, we, we saw this back here, he, he enters a house and he didn't want anybody to know, but again, he can't get a free minute at all. They find him, and then he's approached by a Gentile woman, okay? And that Gentile woman makes an urgent request. So let's consider that urgent request that she makes, verses 25 and 26, right? We're told, but immediately, immediately, that's Mark's favorite word, immediately, a woman, now notice this, whose little daughter had an unclean spirit. That is, she had, a, she had a demon. But notice that word unclean. That's the key word of Mark 7. Unclean, unclean, unclean. Now Jesus is in an unclean region, interacting with an unclean woman concerning her daughter who has an unclean spirit. You see the theme? And it says, it says that she came, and notice what she did. She finds Jesus. She comes to him. This is incredible. She falls down at his feet. And then we're told she was a Gentile. She was a Syrophoenician by birth. So she's, she's from that area. And these are enemies of Israel, right? And notice, notice she makes this urgent request. She begins to beg Jesus to do what? Namely, to cast the demon out of her little girl, her little daughter. If, if you, again, use your cross-references, you look at this event, it's recorded in Matthew 15. If you look at Matthew 15, 22, this woman says this, quote, she says, have mercy on me, 
Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely tormented by a demon. So we're not told how she heard about the son of David or that Jesus is able to do this. We're not told any of that. But she comes, falls down on her feet, and cries out to the son of David for mercy on her little girl who has an unclean spirit. Now, there's everything about this is weird. First of all, um, the, the, everything that happens here is like typically for a, a different rabbi, not Jesus, there would have been reasons not to help. So first of all, she's a woman. Rabbis did not hang out with women. Remember John 4? When the, when the disciples come back and they see Jesus talking with this woman at the well, they're kind of like, what's he doing? Rabbis didn't really hang out or talk with women. They just talked to men. So that's odd. Secondly, she's a Gentile from this enemy. That, that also is weird. And then thirdly, most rabbi, even if they talk to this Gentile woman, as soon as they find out that she's got a demon, they're probably like, sorry, I'm on a retreat. You need to deal with the demon yourself, right? But that's not what happens. She begs him to cast this daughter out, or this, this demon out of her daughter. And so that brings to an unusual response. Notice Jesus' unusual response. This is probably not what we would expect Jesus to say. Verse 27, and he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. How many of you read this verse before and wondered, what's going on here? Is, is this, I mean, when I read this, I'm like, is he calling her a dog? What, what is, what, how is that a response? My daughter, I need mercy. My daughter has a demon. Will you help? And Jesus is talking about children and bread and dogs. What is going on here? So, when you get puzzled, slow down and just ask really basic questions. And we're going to take each one of these at, at one at a time. So first, it sounds pretty harsh, but let's dig in a little bit. Number one, who are the children? So that would be question number one. I see, I see four questions here. Question number one, question number two, question number three, question number four. Who are the children? What does first mean? What's bread? And who are the dogs? So let's take those really quickly, one at a time. Number one, who are the children? That's easy. Who, who are the children? Israel, right? There's Old Testament scriptures call Israel the children of God multiple times, right? Uh, if you want one place, Deuteronomy 14, 1. You are the children of the Lord your God, Israel. So the children Jesus has in mind are Israel, okay? Number two. What, is it, what does that word first mean? That's a really important word. Jesus does not say, let the children eat and then move on. He says, let the children eat what? First. So how many of you have a pet? Do you feed your pets before you feed your children? Probably not. You feed the children first. And so that's an important word. He's not saying that the dogs don't eat. It's just that the children eat first. There's a priority to Jesus' mission. Um, we see this again and again and again, right? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's what Paul did. That's what Jesus did, right? Jesus came to, to save and to reclaim the lost sheep of the tribes of Israel, right? 
And so even in the Old Testament scriptures, we see this. Genesis 12, God promises to bless the whole world, all nations, through who? Abraham, right? Through the offspring of Abraham, through the son of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, the whole world's going to be blessed. But where does the blessing come from? It comes through Israel, through Israel to the world, through the seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a priority. Jesus came primarily to preach and teach and minister to Israel, right? And so that's what that first means. And then we get to bread, right? What, what is the bread? Well, I would understand the bread to be the public ministry of Jesus, right? It's the teaching. It's his healing ministry. It's his, his healing ministry, his signs and wonders reveal through his teaching who he is. And so there's a reason why most of Jesus' public ministry, he's ministering to Jews. Because they get, the, they get the, the witness first. I mean, what did we learn last week from Brad? He came to his own, his own people. And his own people did not receive him. So the, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Right? That's the priority and that's what the bread is. The bread is the precious, life-giving ministry of Jesus as he's proclaiming the kingdom of God, as he's proclaiming the arrival of the king and fulfilling of all the promises of God. And so lastly, who are the dogs? Who are the dogs? Now, dogs are wildly popular in this country, uh, in America. Uh, many of us have, raise your, hand if you, raise your hand if you own a dog. Okay, don't be ashamed. I'm not going to rip your face. Raise your, raise your hand. Really, okay. How many of you own a cat? Okay. A little bit, maybe fewer. All right. Here's the point. In America, everybody loves dogs. Dogs are kind of a nice, and we think of dogs as great. But in, in the Bible, I, did a, I, I, I was going to do a biblical theology of dogs, but I thought I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do that. Here's the deal. Just trust me on this. Dogs in Scripture don't have the connotation of man's best friend, okay? No, no, no. In Scripture, dogs are associated in the Old Testament Scriptures with what was unclean, what's defiled. Um, if you don't believe me, uh, here, here. Exodus, I'll just put a couple. Exodus 22, 31. Okay, that would be one place to see it. Dogs were the, the animals, the wild animals that would scavenge that would eat carcasses, that would be you know, eating through the trash. They were, they were the wild dogs, right? That's, that's how the word is, is used in the Old Testament and the New Testament, okay? So when Jesus is trying to, uh, to teach in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, remember what he says? He says, um, don't give to the dogs what is what? Holy, right? And don't throw your pearls before pigs. Like So pigs and dogs were... were Unclean. That was, you just didn't, you didn't want to be around them, right? That was the idea. Um, and then in the New Testament, in the New Testament, the apostles often refer to heretics as dogs. Remember in Philippians, Paul says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision, right? He, he, he's calling these false teachers dogs, Right? Um, you can see that in, uh, that's Philippians 3.2. I am giving you a biblical theology of dogs. Forget that. Okay. All right. Um, so listen to what some of the Jewish rabbis said. Okay. So you can, just to give the background, 
Jewish rabbis took this connotation of dogs and they applied it to a certain group. Who? Gentiles. Gentiles are unclean. Gentiles are vile. Gentiles are nothing more than dogs. And so here's one quote from a rabbi. The peoples, plural, peoples of the world are like dogs. As the sacred food was intended for men, but not for the dogs, so the Torah was intended to be given to the chosen people, but not to the Gentiles. You see? So Gentiles were regarded as ignorant, godless, idolatrous, unclean, just like dogs. Okay? So you might think, well, Jesus is just picking up on this idea and insulting this woman. But I don't think that's what's going on, okay? Here's what's going on. When you look up the word dog in Scripture, it almost always has the connotation of this. Like a wild dog that I've been describing. Outside, kind of running around, eating carcasses and stuff. But here in this passage... In this passage, Jesus doesn't use the normal word for dog. He uses what we call a diminutive. Now, what is a diminutive? Oftentimes in language, you can add a prefix or a suffix on a word to indicate the small version of that noun. So you can do this in Spanish. You can do this in a lot of languages. Um, Y'all tracking with me? Diminutive. So, like, if you have a dog, right, what would be the, what would be, if dog is kind of the main idea, what would be the, the, the diminutive of a dog? A puppy, a little dog, right? That's the word that Jesus used earlier. And that's the word that the woman is about to use here in a minute. So, when we hear the word dog from Jesus' mouth, he's not talking about the outside dogs. The dogs that are scavenging in the, in the dumpster, The dogs, the scary dogs, these dogs right here. What does he have in mind? He's thinking of a little dog. A dog that's small. A dog that would be inside the house. A pet. A family pet. So the visual you need to have in your mind is not this dog, but this dog. This is a a Roark friend. His name is Ripper. (laughs) I told Ripper he was going to make his debut in the class this morning, and he just, he just looked at me because he's not that bright of a dog. He didn't understand what I meant, right? This is Ripper. So don't think this dog. Think this dog. And you might be thinking, you're reading a lot into the diminutive form of the noun. I'm not. Because context is king. This interpretation only makes sense if you look at what's coming afterwards. When the woman picks up the very word that Jesus has used. So he picks up a word, but he doesn't use the word that all the rabbis are using, the the dogs on the outside. He says, the the dogs on the inside. They They don't get the food first. And I can tell you right now, Ripper, as much as Elijah tries to give him food first... Elijah in our family is the one who constantly is giving Ripper food from the table. So you need to talk to Elijah about this. But let's, let's look at let, and see how this makes sense, okay? This comes to an unbelievable reply from, from this woman. It's unbelievable. 
Look what she says. So here's verse 27. Jesus uses the word here, this diminutive. And this woman's going to pick up and use the same word. But she answered, yes, Lord. Really important right here, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So think about that. Jesus said the children eat first, right? Not the little dogs. And she, instead of saying, why are you calling me a dog? She humbly says, yes, yes, Lord. But even the little dogs that come under the table, they get, they get some crumbs. They get a few pieces of the bread. Why is she saying that? I think she's saying this, beloved, because she's humble. She's, think about it. She's, she's falling down before Jesus' feet and asking for mercy. So I want you to just put your, re reword it like this. She's saying by her actions, Lord Jesus, I accept the role of a little dog. If that means getting fed. I understand, Lord, I have no rightful claim to your mercy. I understand that I am not numbered among the children of Israel. I have no right to sit at the table and to feast on the food that you set before your children. I don't want that. I'm satisfied, Lord, with the crumbs. All I'm asking is that you'll let me have one crumb from your table. And I'll be satisfied. Heal my daughter. I know she's not in your family yet. I know she's not numbered among the children. We are little dogs who wait for the crumbs. But one crumb is all I'm asking for. Beloved, that's humility. She gives this faith-filled response. And the, you say, well, how do you say that it's faith-filled? Here's why I know. I know it for a couple of reasons. But first, it, what did she call Jesus? Are you ready for this? If you've studied Mark's gospel, this is the only time in the entire gospel of Mark where someone calls Jesus Lord. Isn't that amazing? You want an example of what it means to be a disciple of the risen Lord Jesus? This Syrophoenician Gentile woman. That's what a disciple looks like. She trusts Jesus as her Lord, the son of David. She knows he can do all things. And over in Matthew 15, 28, Jesus says to her response, O woman, great is your faith. Great is your faith. She recognizes that Jesus has come, the Messiah promised in the scriptures, the son of Abraham, and she knows that through the seed of Abraham, blessing comes to the whole world, and she's asking for some of those crumbs. And then what happens next? Verse 29. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home 
and found the little child lying in bed and the demon is gone. You see, Jesus, he is the king. He's the king whose grace knows no borders. And so let me just ask two brief questions about this interaction and ask what can we draw from this? What can we draw from Jesus's ministry to her? And what can we draw from her witness to us? Okay, so first one, what can we learn from Jesus's ministry to this Gentile woman? It's simply this, it's what we've said earlier, that by going into this Gentile region, going to, to where the enemies of the people of God are, Jesus is pointing back and he's pointing forward. He's pointing back to, to, to remind us that God has always had a plan to bless the whole world. That God's plan is to bring the blessing of Abraham to all nations. Even those who hate us. Even those who, who are enemies. Who don't want us there. Jesus is, is a preview. It's a fulfillment of what's been promised in the past. Remember Isaiah 49. That the servant of the Lord comes to redeem Israel and then he's a light to the nations. That this priority is there even in the Old Testament scriptures. And so this is a picture, a little small picture of, of what God's word had said in the Old Testament. But it's also a preview of what's to come. Jesus is going to die and rise again and he's going to commission his disciples to go take the gospel to where? All nations. Even nations that hate us. Even nations that don't want us there. Because the blessing of Abraham will come through the son of Abraham to the ends of the earth. And so the risen Christ is even teaching us in this passage that all of us as his followers, we don't just have a team that trains to go overseas. This is what it means to be a Christian, is that we pray thy will be done. Father, Glorify your name. Hallowed be your name in all the earth. That's the heartbeat of a Christian. And so we may not be the one that goes. Some of you in this room will. But all of us are called by the risen Christ to pray, to give, to send, and to go to make disciples of the whole world. Of all nations. Every tribe and nation and tongue. Isn't that exciting? That's what it means to be a church. That's what it means to be a Christian is to follow Christ's example and command to the ends of the earth. So that's what this interaction, this little preview of the Great Commission is happening here. His grace knows no borders. And then the second thing is what can we learn from the witness of this Gentile woman? There's a lot that we could point out. But I would just point out this. First of all, being needy does not disqualify you from receiving the grace of Jesus. It's actually the prerequisite. Empty-handedness is always the starting point for grace. When you come to Jesus, we come to Jesus with empty hands. We come to Jesus asking for mercy. And that's what this woman teaches us. A broken and contrite heart, Jesus 
will not despise. Friend, if you come to Jesus asking for mercy, he will not turn you away. He will not turn you away. And the reason that we don't come to Jesus for mercy is because of our pride. And what this woman shows us is she's willing to be considered a little dog if it means that she gets a crumb of the mercy of Jesus Christ. He gives mercy to the humble. He opposes the proud, but he gives mercy to the humble and grace. Uh, Our brother R.C. Sproul said it like this. The true believer savors every crumb that comes from the hand of God. The good news is that the overflow of mercy and grace that comes to us from the hands of God, even though we should be satisfied with crumbs, he is not satisfied with giving us crumbs. He has lavished his grace upon us. Amen. Would you trade the crumb of your salvation for anything in the world? When I was reading this passage, it made me think of another one. This is one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 113. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. And here's why. The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high and who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? And then verse 7 is just amazing. This one who's high and seated on high, who looks far down even on the heavens, he raises the poor from the dust and he lifts up the needy from the ash heap. To make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. Brothers and sisters, when you take the Lord's Supper this morning, I want you to ponder the words of our passage. I want you to remember that most of us in this room are Gentiles. And yet in his mercy, the Lord of glory, the one who's on high, has stooped down. And drawn near to us, filthy, unclean, defiled. And instead of sending us away, the son of David has had mercy on us. Instead of casting us aside, he has lifted us up from the ash heap of our sin. And he's adopted us into his family. And he's given us a seat at his table as sons and daughters of the King of Kings. And through the gospel of his grace, he has brought us into his banqueting house. And the banner over our whole lives is love. So this morning, when you take the supper and you hold that crumb of bread in your hands, I want you to consider what it cost the Savior To put that bread in your hand. And when you put that bread in your mouth. Brothers and sisters, you know what you should taste? Mercy. It should taste like mercy. Because he's the king whose grace knows no borders. And in his mercy, he has brought his mercy to us.
So brothers and sisters, I've got one other thing to point out. There's this last few verses here, and I just want to highlight a few things, and then we'll be take a, some application, and then we'll be done. So Jesus leaves this Gentile woman, and he goes around about down to the Decapolis, those cities on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Again, a Gentile region. And so Mark tells us, he sets the scene for us. He says, and he returned to the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, down to the Decapolis. And then look at verse 32. Look at verse 32. This is important. And they, uh, we're assuming that's Gentiles, brought to him uh, a man. And notice the description of this man. He was deaf and he had a speech impediment. Now, real quick, that we're going to come back to this later, but that's really important. Speech impediment. This, this word that Mark uses, it's only used one time in the entire New Testament. One time. So we'll come back to that later. That's really important. And notice these these, these folks that brought him, Jesus, this man who's deaf and has a speech impediment, they, they begged him. So just like that woman earlier, man, what was she doing? She was begging Jesus. Same verb. They begged him to lay his hand on him, to, to help him, right? Now, you all know that when someone is deaf, right, it affects their speech. Your speech and your, and your hearing go hand in hand. Right, So we're not told how this man became deaf. We're not told if he'd been deaf his whole life. It, we're not told if he, he, he lost his hearing and then, then that, his, his speech impediment was formed. We don't know. But they go, they go hand in hand, right? And so obviously there's nothing that these friends could do for this man. They're powerful. They can't fix his deafness and they can't help his speech impediment. But they think, well, Jesus can. So they take this man to Jesus, okay? So what happens? What happens? Well, taking him aside. This is amazing that Jesus takes the man aside. We're not told why he does this. There, there was clearly a crowd. We know that from here. So there's a crowd of people. And Jesus, instead of doing this healing in front of everybody, he takes the man off to the side to give him his full attention. And for the man to feel the full attention of the Savior. And notice what he does. Notice what he does. He puts his fingers into his ears. Now, we're not told this. I'm interpreting this. You can buy this if you want. I think the way that Jesus is handling this man, it's a kind of form of sign language. He can't hear him. So if Jesus is telling him what he's doing, he can't hear him. So he's putting his fingers on his ears to indicate, I'm about to do something for your ears. I'm about to hear, heal your ears. And then he does the same thing. After spitting, what does he do? What does he touch? His tongue. Okay, y'all wake up. Now take a sip of coffee and wake up. What, what, what's he doing? It's like sign language. He's saying, I'm about to heal your ears. And I'm about to heal your tongue. How loving is that? Jesus doesn't have a, a one-size-fits-all miracle of healing. 
He's giving this man the precise attention so that he understands what's about to happen. And so after doing this, looking up to heaven to indicate, as it were, that he's praying. He sighed. We'll come back to that later. And he said to him, Ephratha, that is, be opened. Be opened. So he touches this man, and then he looks up. He says, be opened. And what happens? This is amazing. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released. Some of your Bibles may say, uh, the chain of his tongue was loosened. Isn't that great? And notice, he spoke plainly. I would have given Mark $100 to know what the dude said. What were his first words, right? You would think, why didn't you record that? Well, I'm going to ask Mark that when I see him. Okay, what did he say? What was his first? Those are the kind of questions that keep me up at night. What did the guy say? Verse 36, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. I always say, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but, notice the contrast here, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. So I want you to just think about this. At the command of Jesus, those ears that had heard no sound for many, many years, if ever, were opened. And that tongue that had been chained was set free. The man could hear clearly. He could speak plainly. And we're not told what the man said, but we are told the first thing he heard other than his own voice. Maybe he was just trying to see if it worked. We're told what he heard right here. His friends, they, this is amazing. They were astonished beyond measure. <laughs> they were astounded. And what did he hear them saying? He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Isn't that beautiful? So I want to just close by just asking a few questions as we close. First, first question is, what's the purpose of the healing miracles in general? You ever ask that question? What is Jesus doing when he's healing these people? We know that Jesus, according to John 20, um, if you read over in John chapter 20, Jesus does all kinds of miracles that aren't written in this book, right? But he did these specific miracles, and these are written down for a, a specific reason. So what, what was the general reason for miracles? Well, I, I, I put a couple things in your notes. First, demonstration. Jesus is able to do the things that only God can do. So when Jesus heals a deaf person or a blind person, that's something only God can do. And so these miracles, they, they demonstrate his deity. Okay? Pretty straightforward. Secondly, they're, they're illustrations. Jesus will often heal people as a way of illustrating. So remember last week or two weeks ago, whenever it was, when Jesus heals Bartimaeus and gives him sight, that's a, there's this beautiful spiritual illustration of the disciples who can see don't recognize Jesus. 
But the blind man, Bartimaeus, who can't see, recognizes him. And so Jesus is using these healing miracles to illustrate spiritual truths. That's the other purpose of these miracles. And then the third one is probably the one I'd want to linger on for a minute. The purpose of the miracle, these healing miracles, is for restoration. Restoration. What Jesus is doing is sometimes we think of the miracles as a suspension of the natural order of things. Like he's, he's suspending the laws of nature to do this miracle. I would argue, beloved, it's the opposite. He's restoring what's natural. People weren't born into the world in the beginning deaf or blind or sick. There's a day coming when sickness and blindness and deafness will be gone forever. What he's doing, beloved, in these healing miracles, it's a preview of coming attractions. It's a picture that he's the one who's making all things new. There won't be cancer. There won't be any of these other things that plague us in this world. All that will be done away with. And so these are pictures of the restoration that the king of kings, the creator himself, is showing that he's going to make things new. It's a preview of the world to come. And I think that's why in verse 33 we're told that Jesus sighed. He groaned before he performed this miracle. It's a, it was a reminder of the brokenness of this world. And he knew that in order to bring about that restoration, the one who did this miracle and who groaned and who sighed was going to have to go to the cross. And there on the cross, he didn't just sigh. He screamed. He screamed on the cross so that we might sing forever. He screamed on the cross so that you, beloved, might sing with him in glory. Let me ask you one more question and then we'll be done. What's the purpose of this healing miracle in particular? You ever wondered that? Why did he do this specific thing? Well, remember I told you that word, Speech impediment. I told you, what did I tell you? I said it's the only time it's used what? It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. Do you know it's only used one time in the Old Testament? So it's used here in the New Testament. Now look, some of you know Greek and Hebrew. And if you did, if you were to search this Greek word and you were to search in the New Testament, so it only shows up once and then you could take the the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and search on it there, and you'd find where it is. Now, you could do all that, but you know what you could also do? Just look over an inch. <laughs> Just look at your cross-references. Now, I, I keep telling you all this because that's where the glory is. They've done all this work for you. When you look at your cross-references outside this verse, do you know what verse pops up? The only other time it's used in the whole Bible, Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. So you know what you should do at that point? You should stop what you're doing 
and just put your little bookmark in Mark 7 and then flip on over to, to Isaiah 35. And you know what you find? This is what you find. You find a passage about what's going to happen when the Lord comes to the earth, when Messiah comes. This is what's going to happen. The wilderness and the dry land will be glad and the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. I have no idea what a crocus is. And it shall, it's going to blossom though. And it shall blossom abundantly. And, it, and look at this. Rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. So the, in other words, the wilderness, the desert areas are now going to be transformed into glory. And they shall be given glory and the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. And they, look at this, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. So far, so good, right? Strengthen the weak hands and make the feeble, make firm the feeble knees. Keep reading. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, here it is. Your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and he will save you. And then look at what happens when God comes to the earth, when Messiah shows up. What's going to happen? He's going to come and save us. And what's he going to do when he gets here? Then what's going to happen? The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the deaf of the ear of the ears of the deaf will be unstopped and then shall the lame man leap like a deer and then look at this word here it's one word and the tongue of the mute it's the same word that mark uses the tongue of the mute show what sing for joy Jesus Christ goes to this man and heals him because he's fulfilling Isaiah 35. He's bringing this deaf man and this mute man hearing and a tongue so that he can sing for joy. But in order for him to lead us in singing, he has to scream. And so what's our response, beloved? What's our response? Well, if you don't know this Jesus that we've been describing, this glorious one, the majesty, the king of majesty, he went and died on the cross in our place for our sins. He screamed in our place to bear the burden of our sins upon himself. He died and rose again. And he offers the whole world life and forgiveness and mercy. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, the application from this passage is to come with empty hands and receive the mercy of his salvation. Turn and trust in him. He will not turn you away. He's the king who does all things well. Beloved, we ought to be astonished, right? We should be astonished without measure because he's the one who's done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. And if you keep reading in Isaiah 35, you're gonna read 
another amazing thing that he does. And we're told at the end of that passage, the redeemed shall walk there and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. And everlasting joy shall be on their heads and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Isn't that going to be wonderful? The day when joy comes that will never be taken away from us. When he's made all things new and sorrow and sighing flee away. He's the one whose head was crowned with thorns. He's the one who's crowned with resurrection glory now. And he's the one who one day will come and will crown us with everlasting joy. So let me close with these words. I'm going to close the whole class with these words. These are the words of my favorite pastor. Well, my, maybe my, Brad's my favorite. Then my second favorite is John Newton. My favorite dead pastor, okay? I'll close with these words and we'll be done. And then we'll sing the doxology and then I'll let you go. There is a bright, and I want you to believe this, beloved. This is the point of the whole class. There is a brighter world coming where sin and sorrow can never enter. Every moment brings us nearer to it. And then every imperfection shall cease and our best desires shall be satisfied beyond our present conception. Then we shall see him whom not having seen we love. We shall see him in all his glory, not as now through the medium of ordinances like the word, but face to face without a veil. We shall see him and so be completely transformed into his image, his perfect image. And then we shall see all his redeemed and join with the innumerable multitude of all nations, peoples, and languages in singing the triumphant song of Moses and of the Lamb forever. And then we shall look back with wonder on all the way the Lord has led us through this wilderness. And we shall say, he hath done all things well. May this blessed hope comfort our hearts and strengthen our hands so that we may finish our course with joy. Beloved, Jesus has done all things well. And he's going to make all things new. Do you believe that? Let's pray.